Okay, turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We are looking at this uh, chapter in which we've been looking, as you know, we've been going through, as we've gone through the book of Matthew, uh, that uh, Matthew has been presenting Jesus as the Messiah King, the anointed ruler. And we have finally come to chapter uh, 8, and in chapters 8 and 9, Matthew sets forth another qualification that demonstrates that Jesus is qualified as the Messiah, and that by and that is by his divine power. Now, why does he do that? Because Matthew is very carefully laying out his case for the divinity and kingship of Jesus Christ. And what better way to do that than to follow telling us about the astonishment of the Jews at the authoritative nature of Jesus' teaching in chapter 7 with this series of miracles. He's showing beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is God. And so for two chapters, Matthew tells us about Jesus dealing, uh, uh, healing and, and, and casting out demons and demonstrating the power over nature and the created world. The terribly tragic thing, though, is that after the miracles of chapters 8 and 9, after preaching all the preaching that occurs after that, many of the Jews, including their religious leadership, conclude in chapter 12 that Jesus is performing his miracles by Satan's power. There, as we said last week, there are nine miracles in these two chapters. They come in three sections of three, three miracles, then a response, three miracles, then a response, three miracles, then a response, uh, all designed to manifest the deity of Jesus Christ. The first involves a healing of a leper. Second involves a healing of a paralytic. Third involves a woman with a fever. And there's several key things to note about the first three miracles. First, they begin at the lowest level of human need, the physical. Second, uh, Jesus responds in all three cases to the appeals of those affected in some way by the disease, whether directly or indirectly, because it's a family or member or a friend, something like that. Third, in every case, he acts on his own will, although he is sympathetic and although he is at the same time deeply compassionate, he's also sovereign. So he acts on his own volition. And fourth, in each of these miracles, he touches someone who, in terms of the Pharisees and Jewish religious leadership, were considered to be at the lowest levels of humanity. So from the very start, he makes clear that he's going to establish his authority by miraculous power, and he's going to show his sympathy for those who are hurting at the lowest level of human need. He's going to compassionately respond to the cries of their friends and those who have needs, and yet he's going to act sovereignly as the Lord that he is. So let's read again about his healing of the leper in verses 1 to 4. It says, When Jesus came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a leper came to him and bowed down before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, See that you tell no one, but go, show yourself to the priest, and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. Verse 2 says that a leper came to him. Uh, that word means to approach, to come near. Now, why did we say last week that that was interesting? Because, yeah, a leper wasn't supposed to approach anyone. 
they had to wear clothing, had to wear, wear torn clothing. They had to cover their face with a mask. They had to uncover their head. And they had to cry unclean, unclean wherever they went so everybody could avoid them. And they lived a life of isolation and exile from both their family and the rest of the community. They never approached anyone deliberately, but this guy did. Uh, leprosy, as we talked about last week, originated in Egypt. Uh, the Israelites, since they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, it naturally made its way into their population. And then when they came to the promised land, it came with them. Uh, it was the most feared disease in the ancient world. Uh, and so God gave them laws to deal with leprosy so that it would reduce the spread uh, and the, of that disease in, among the community. Uh, he told them back in Leviticus 13 how to deal with leprosy. And so a person that had something went to the, on their skin, they went to the priest, they, they showed... If he showed signs of being more than a superficial skin problem, he was isolated for seven days. If the symptoms became worse, the individual was then isolated seven more days. And if that time, if the rash had cleared up or not spread any further, they were declared clean. Uh, even if they still had a rash, if it had not spread or gone deeper into the skin, they were clean because it was probably something like eczema or, psoriasis or psoriasis or something like that. Uh, however, if the priest saw that the condition had spread and gotten worse, the person was declared unclean. Uh, if the hair in the infected places was turning white, caused by leprosy, killing the hair follicles and there were sores, it was leprosy and the person was immediately declared unclean. Now, as we talked last week, there were two kinds of leprosy. The one was called uh, lepromatous leprosy. Uh, which was severe and serious and widespread across the body. It's the type which is most contagious. It causes great damage to the body and may eventually be fatal. Uh, the less contagious form is called tuberculoid le leprosy. Uh, there are very few lesions or patches with it, and it usually went away in one to three years. Uh, scientists believe leprosy spreads by breathing the droplets from the coughs and sneezes of a leper. Uh, so God commanded that the lepers wear a mask. And, uh, but it can be spread also with contact with things that the leper has handled, particularly if that person then puts their hand in their mouth or has an open cut or something uh, for the bacteria to enter their bloodstream. So to prevent infections to others, as we said, they had to go around uh, shouting you know, with their, their face covered, and saying unclean so no one could get near them. As you mentioned, not being within six feet of them. That was in the Talmud. And if it was, the wind was blowing, it they said 150 feet. Uh, they, there were 61 ways in Judaism to be defiled. And number one was touching a dead body. Number two was going near or, or touching a leper. So no one ever went near them. Uh, I read to you the description last week from Dr. Heizinga of the horrors of leprosy. Um, I'll just read it again for your reminder. It says, the disease that we call today call leprosy generally begins with pain in certain areas of the body. Numbness follows. Soon the skin in such spots loses its original color. It gets to be thick, glossy, and scaly. As the sickness progresses, the thickened spots become dirty sores and ulcers due to poor blood supply. 
The skin, especially around the eyes and ears, begins to bunch with deep furrows between the swellings, so the face of the afflicted individual begins to resemble the face of a lion. Uh, fingers drop off or are absorbed. Toes are similar, affected similarly. Eyebrows and eyelashes drop out. By this time, one can see the leper, that the person in this pitiable condition is a leper. By the touch of the finger, one can almost also feel it. Uh, one can even smell it for the leper emits a very unpleasant odor. Moreover, in view of the fact that the disease-producing agent frequently also attacks the larynx, the leper's voice assumes a grating quality. His throat becomes hoarse, and you can not only see, feel, and smell the leper, but you can hear his rasping voice. And if you stay with him for some time, you can even imagine a particular taste in your mouth, probably due to the odor." End quote. So obviously the disease was feared, but even beyond that, it wasn't just the being horribly disfigured and repulsive, but I add to that, they were ceremonially unclean. So they could not participate in any of the religious activities of the nation. Uh, and so here's the situation. Leprosy then becomes, in Scripture, a graphic illustration of sin. Uh, you see, sin defiles the whole body. It's ugly, it's loathsome, it's incurable, it's contaminating, sin separates and alienates and makes outcasts of men. Uh, so every leper not only lived the horror of his own disease, but he lived with the stigma of being a walking illustration of sin, ceremonially unclean, unable to experience any kind of relationship with God through the temple worship, the sacrifice, or the feast. In verse 2 continues, it says, Behold, a leper came. Uh, that's Matthew's way of expressing how shocking this was. It's as if he's saying in the vernacular, you'll never believe this, a leper came. And that's because lepers didn't approach. Now, there's four things we saw last week that stand out about this leper. First, he came with confidence. He didn't crawl or, or sneak around trying to call out to Jesus and say, hey, come here. No, he went to Jesus uh, he obviously sensed a love and tenderness in Jesus that allowed him to approach him without fear of reprisal or reprimand. Somehow he knew that Jesus was neither afraid of him nor ashamed to associate with him. In the parallel account in Luke 5, it tells us that this man was covered with leprosy, or some versions say full of leprosy. Uh, he, his, his was a serious advanced case. Uh, you could probably smell him coming from the stench of his rotting infected flesh. But he didn't care. He came. He came because he saw he had a very deep need and he wanted help more than he wanted to save his reputation. The second thing noticed, we noticed about him is that he came with reverence. Verse 2 says, Behold, a leper came and bowed down before him and said, Lord. It's an incredible contrast here because I'm sure there were some Pharisees standing around watching this. And here they are, all decked out in their fancy robes, wearing all the accoutrements of their pharisaical order, and inside they're wretched and rotten. And they're like whitewashed tombs full of dead men's bones, Jesus said later. And yet here was this leper, filthy, vile, wretched, ugly on the outside. Inside, he's beautiful, reverent, and worshipful. Um, and then... Third, he came with humility. He came expectantly, not demandingly. He says, Lord, if you're willing. That's humility. He didn't, he didn't speak his will as if the Lord had to comply. He didn't come with a list of all the reasons 
why he was worthy of being healed. He wasn't trying to affirm his worthiness. Uh, he, he has nothing to claim. He worshiped first and never asked for anything. He just said, I know you can if you are willing. Fourth and finally, he came with faith. He says, if you're willing, you can make me clean. He says, you're able to heal me. You have the power. You're able. I know. I'm convinced of that. You know, that's faith at its highest point because it knows that God is able. It submits to God's sovereignty. And so what happens? Verse 3, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him. Jesus didn't have to touch him, did he? He, he could have merely spoken the words, I'm willing to be cleansed, and he would have been healed. But Jesus touched him. He extended his arm. He reached out his arm to its full length so that everyone standing around would not miss what was happening and touched him. That word touched is from a Greek word, verb, which when it's in the middle voice as it is here, means to take hold of. It was not just a quick momentary touch by Jesus but rather he laid his hand on this man and held on to him. And he says, I'm willing to be cleansed. That is simply Jesus acknowledging that he has the authority and the power to do such. All that was needed was his decision to act and the man was healed. So the authority to heal and transform is implicit in Jesus' person and mission. The authority is already his. He needs only to will the deed and it's done. But his followers must come to him with an attitude that the leper had in this account. They must recognize the sweep of his authority and petition him for grace for a decision to display his authority in their favor. Bruce? Yes? Just a, just a question. Kind of as, I, as I read that, I, I think about kneeling, right? Mm -hmm. And then for a leper to kneel with all the yeah. painful yeah. things that you mentioned, I mean, how painful that must have been yeah. for him to get on his hands and knees. And, and he's doing this rocky ground, right? Yeah, not, and he's just, he's doing it. And then the other thing that, that hit me about that is, how many other people around Jesus that talks about large crowds? Mm -hmm. How many others around Jesus were kneeling? Or was this, were they all standing? This, they're, I think they're all standing. They're following him. It says they followed him down off right. the mountain. Yeah. I think at this point, this leper's come up. They're all jumped back and they're standing far away as far as they can get, but still see watch what's happening and, and observe this. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there, there's perhaps no better way to understand what this involves than contrasting this leper's request for a miracle with similar requests that Jesus denied. Uh, in Matthew 12, 38, and in Matthew 16, 1, the scribes and Pharisees approached Jesus, and they asked him to perform some kind of miracle sign for them, miraculous sign for them. Uh, and he rebuked them. Why? Because their asking was not because they had a specific need, but because they wanted to decide if he was really the Messiah or not, and they claimed that a sign would affirm who he was so that they would believe in him. In other words, they had set themselves up as judges to determine whether or not he fit the criteria to be the Messiah, rather than coming as those in need of grace. Uh, they had ample opportunities to witness his miracles, but they wanted one on demand. Uh, D.A. Carson explains the situation like this. I thought this was great. Quote, he says, If Jesus had complied, he would have been compromised, a trained stuntman programmed to perform tricks on demand. The religious leaders would have domesticated him. That is why he rejects their challenge so decisively. The invading power of the kingdom is at Jesus' disposal, not theirs. 
It is his will that is decisive, not theirs. To avail oneself of Jesus' transforming power, one must come as a humble petitioner in need or not at all, end quote. And this leper, full of leprosy, understood his grave condition, that he was without hope and unable to save himself from his situation. So he came as the humble beggar that he was, pleading with Jesus to make him clean if Jesus should choose to do so. And Jesus answered his plea and willingly healed him. And the end of verse 3 says these great words, and immediately his leprosy was cleansed. I don't know what that scene was like, but I can imagine. Those shriveled up claws instantly became beautiful hands again. The stubs that were his feet regained their toes. The tumors that had swollen his face disappeared and the deep furrows in his forehead smoothed out. His eyebrows and eyelashes suddenly reappeared. And the many places on his skin that were covered with lesions and bloody scabs where the skin had been scraped off were all cleared up instantly. No doubt there was this, shall I call it a rolling roar of gasp, of amazement throughout the crowd as they realized what they'd just seen. We can only guess how the leper reacted. I would guess that his, with his voice that no longer rasped, unclean, unclean, he were shouts of joy, I'm clean, I'm clean. You know, when, when Jesus touched him, he was clean immediately. All of Jesus' miracles were immediate. It was not a case of an unverifiable condition that no one can see, such as my arthritic knees or Marsha's migraines. Uh, it, this was clearly visible to everyone there, and it was immediately and visibly taken away. When people go to see some fraudulent faith healer like Benny Hinn or Kenneth Copeland, they'll come back with all these stories about the supposed healings that took place there. But the common thread among them is that one, they could not be visually verified, and two, they're not or they were not immediate and complete. Uh, when, when people came to Jesus with a shriveled arm or paralyzed or blind eyes or severe leprosy, he healed them immediately and completely, and other people could visually see the results. And another thing, when we touch a defilement, what happens? We get defiled. When Jesus touched defilement, the defilement went away. When we touch a disease, we get contaminated. When he touches a disease, it gets cleansed. That's power. That's divine power. You know, as great as our medical science is today, with all they can do to cure disease and repair, repair broken bones and hearts and so many other things in our body, all of modern medicine's advances pale in comparison to that kind of omnipotent power. The best physicians in the world are mere folly in comparison to the power of Christ. They might replace hands and feet with prosthetic devices that can do incredible things by the power of robotics, but they cannot recreate biological hands and feet with living tissue. But Jesus did, and he did it immediately. Now we come to verse 4, and this is important. It says, and Jesus said to him, 
See that you tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and present the offering that Moses commanded as a testimony to them. That first statement, see that you tell no one, had to be the hardest part of Jesus' instruction to that man. Can you imagine what the first thing you'd want to do would be if you were just instantly healed of leprosy after suffering with it for many years? You would want to shout the news to everyone you saw. <clears throat> but before this man could celebrate his new lease on life, or even told anyone else about this miraculous healing, Jesus said he had to go fulfill the <clears throat> requirements of the Mosaic law by having the temple priest attest to his cure. So what's the first test when Christ has invaded your life? One word, obedience. When we come to faith in Christ, the first thing that the Holy Spirit starts whispering in our heart is the importance of obedience to God's word. And that's what Jesus calls this man to do now, to obey the requirements of the law of God. He has to go present himself to the priest at the temple in Jerusalem to have his cleansing verified. <clears throat> the process for this <coughs> is described in Leviticus 14. As I told you before, there was this minor type of leprosy called ter um, tuberculoid leprosy, uh, which goes away in one, two, three years. So God had provided through Moses the procedure for dealing with a leper who was cured of leprosy. So here's what this guy had to do. He went to the priest who would meet him outside the camp or outside the city to examine him. If the priest believed him to be clean, then the priest took two clean birds, most likely turtle doves or pigeons, and killed one of them in a clay pot over running water. The live bird, along with cedar wood, a scarlet string, and hyssop, was then dipped in the blood of the slain bird, and the leper was sprinkled seven times with the bird's blood. He was pronounced clean, and the live bird was set free. The cleansed leper was then to wash his clothes, shave off his hair, and bathe himself. He could then rejoin Israelite society, but he had to stay out of his, outside of his tent or home for seven days. On the eighth day, he was to bring a guilt offering of two male lambs without blemish, a sin offering of one ewe lamb, a grain offering, and a pint of oil to the priest for the priest to offer his sacrifices and to anoint him. If he was poor, which most lepers were, there were provisions to replace two of the sheep with turtle doves or pigeons, and there was a reduced amount of, of grain offering and oil. And after that sacrificial ritual, the leper was declared officially clean and could return to all aspects of Israelite society. And so that's the procedure that Jesus tells this leper whom he has healed to go do. He wanted him to fulfill the law of Moses in Leviticus 14. Why would he do that? Because Jesus didn't come to destroy the law, but to fulfill it, right? And while he was devastating the, the Pharisees' system of traditions and regulations, he didn't want them to think for a moment that he was violating God's word. But let me tell you the best reason. Look at the end of the verse. It says that he was to present the offering that Moses commanded. Why? As a testimony to them. There's another reason for this man not to tell anyone how he got cleansed. Remember, he's in Galilee and Jerusalem where the temple is, 
that he has to go to is 115 miles away. So Jesus is saying, don't tell anyone how you got healed yet. Just head down to Jerusalem to the priest and go through the procedure to verify that you've been cleansed. Now think of this. Jesus wants this guy to go down to where no one has heard about him being healed or how he got healed. He's to present himself to the priest and go through an eight-day process of examination and sacrifices. At the end of that, the priests are going to conclude, yep, this is, leper has been healed, of cleansed of leprosy. And when they're all done, this guy can say to them, would you like to know how this happened to me? <laughs> Jesus of Nazareth healed me. And then they're trapped in their own conclusion. The priest will confirm he's clean and they'll discover that it was done by Jesus and by their own examination and testimony, they will confirm the power of Christ. But it all hinges on the fact that he must hurry to Jerusalem and didn't spread it around. Or the word would get there first that Jesus did it and then they wouldn't be interested in examining him. But you know what happened? He was too excited to keep his mouth shut. Mark tells us that. Mark 1.45 says, But he went out and began to proclaim it freely and to spread the news around to such an extent that Jesus could no longer publicly enter a city, but stayed out in unpopulated areas and they were coming to him from everywhere. This healing turned into such big news that no one would leave Jesus alone wherever he traveled. That's the one sad part of this story, that the guy didn't do as he was told. He didn't obey. He failed. I understand his excitement, but at the same time, he should have obeyed Jesus. But I don't want our understanding of this miracle to end there this morning. I want you to think about this. In Matthew 9, Jesus saw a paralyzed man and told him, your sins are forgiven. The scribes heard it and they began accusing him of blasphemy. And so Jesus asked them the question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? In other words, which is more difficult, to heal disease or to forgive sin? You know why he asked that? Because all of the time that he was performing those kinds of miracles, he was not only revealing his power over disease, but every single one of them was also an illustration of his power over what? Sin. And so I see this in this account of I see this account of the leper's healing as an analogy. It's analogous to a conversion. Follow my thinking here. Leprosy is just like sin. It's pervasive. It's ugly. It's loathsome. It's incurable. It makes you an outcast, separated from God. You're unclean before a holy God. You can have no relationship with him so long as you're unclean with your sin. In fact, the disease of sin is infinitely worse than the disease of leprosy. Because leprosy, like any other disease, is temporal. Sin, if left uncured, results in eternal death. And notice that the leper came with confidence. It said, why did he do that? Because he recognized his desperate situation and he wanted to be cleansed by the only one who could cleanse him. That's how conversion happens. People don't get saved unless they get desperate over the loathsomeness of the disease of sin. And that is often missing in the evangelism of our time. So the man came. He cast aside all of the social stigma. He lost 
all of his fear of being ostracized. He didn't care about any of that anymore. He was overwhelmed with the loathsomeness of his disease. And in the same way, coming to Christ is not merely getting on the Jesus bandwagon. It's recognizing that you're wretched and unworthy and being so desperate that you don't care what your friends or family or anyone else thinks. Second, he came worshiping. True conversion occurs when desperate people come worshiping God not seeking any kind of glory or benefit for themselves, but recognizing God's glory and his authority, seeing his sovereign lordship over your life and willingly submitting to his authority, knowing that only he can heal you of your leprous sin. I, I believe true salvation demands that kind of wretchedness and that kind of affirmation of his authority as Lord. Third, he came humbly. True salvation doesn't take the perspective that you're doing God some kind of favor. There's no self-will, no self-centeredness, no sense of worthiness, no sense of value, no rights, no claims, no nothing. It's the meek who inherit the kingdom. Finally, he came with faith. He believed Jesus would heal him. And you can't be saved without faith. There must be a recognition of the wretchedness of your sin. There must be worship of the authority and lordship of Christ. There must be humility and faith, trusting that Christ alone can heal you of your sin. And when you come on those terms, you will be touched and cleansed. And then it says, then, and then when you're saved, you know what the Lord says? He says, do two things. First, obey the law of God. Obey God's word. And second, let other people see the changes in your life so it isn't just your words about what happened to you. Show them by a transformed life how different you are because of the cleansing power of Jesus Christ. Don't run around telling them all about how much you love Jesus and how he changed your life if when they look at how you live, they don't see any difference between you and them. If your life doesn't change, keep your mouth shut. Don't shoot off your mouth and not be able to support it with the way you live. This guy was running around telling everyone, Jesus of Nazareth changed my life. Just look at me. I used to be a leper. And someone who was there that day asked, hey, why aren't you, then why aren't you headed down to Jerusalem to show yourself to the priest like he told you to do? His response could only be, well, eventually I'm going to get around to doing that. You see, a disobedient life in the midst of a testimony is meaningless. A testimony is rendered invalid. Be obedient. In the midst of your obedience, God will reveal to others the transforming power of Christ. It's your life that speaks far more to others than just your words. Words are necessary. I'm not denying that. But your life must be an example of obedience that verifies the truth of your words. And so we see in this wonderful story that the leper's healing was much more than just a physical healing. It's an analogy which the Spirit of God inspired all three authors of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three to include in their Gospels as an analogy of the healing of the soul from sin. Well, that brings us to the second miracle that's recorded here in Matthew 8, found in verses 5 to 13. Before we start looking at that, let me pause and ask, are there any other questions or comments regarding the leper? Yes. What about all the witnesses? 
because they've got to be blabbing that all over the Yeah, yeah, I'm sure they did. It's another reason Jesus couldn't go in the cities. He was mobbed. They were going out to the country to find him. Yes? Also, I don't think the leper understood how significant it was for him to be obedient because he was caught up in his Yeah. Had he known the impact that his obedience would have had and how much it would have worked on God, he might have done it. But in his ignorance, yep. he justified his action. And to make the take that analogy, when someone comes to faith in Christ, that's so important for the first thing we need to do with them is start discipling them in what they need to do. Because if we just let them, okay, you're on your own. They're, yeah, yeah. Well, he knew he he was told what to do. But he, yeah, I'll get to it. I'll get around someday. Okay, well, let's look at Jesus, the story of Jesus healing a paralytic. Let's read verses 5 to 13. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, and it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Many commentators believe that all of these first three miracles occurred on the same day. Uh, he finished the sermon, came down off the mountain, healed the leper, and then entered Capernaum, and that's certainly possible. Uh, Capernaum was a lovely little town on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Uh, it doesn't exist anymore because Jesus pronounced a curse on it, uh, which we will study when we get to chapter 11, verse 23. Uh, it's very beautiful there, but the only things left are some ruins, ruins of uh, the synagogue and of, of a few houses, one of which uh, is, according to tradition, Peter's house. Uh, but there's not a city there anymore. Uh, they never rebuilt it. There's a Franciscan monastery and a Catholic church there, but nothing else. Uh, but that lovely little town it was where Jesus lived. Uh, Matthew 4.13 tells us that, and Matthew 9.1 refers to it as his own city. Verse 5 says, And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him. Now let me address an issue right up front here that has caused those who are looking for issues uh, to claim that the Bible is full of contradictions and errors. There's one here. Uh, he, in, here in Matthew's account, he writes the story as if the centurion is personally face-to-face -face with Jesus asking for his assistance. 
But when you go over to Luke's account in Luke 7, you find that this entire incident took place through intermediaries. Luke explains that at first some Jewish elders went to Jesus on behalf of the centurion. Then while Jesus was on his way there, the centurion sent some friends to give Jesus additional information. So that's why those who want to criticize and reject the Bible as God's inspired and errant word will pick out a story like this and say, well, look now, those two stories, those counts can't both be right. But I think Bible scholar Leon Morris has done an excellent job in explaining how these two passages can be harmonized and why they're so different. He writes, quote, It is better to see Matthew as abbreviating the story and leaving out details inessential to his purpose. What a man does through agents, he may be said to do himself. Let me just interrupt the quote by commenting that we do the same thing with the President of the United States. The President may send one of the members of his administration out to say something uh, on the President's behalf, and as far as anyone is concerned, it's as if the President himself said it. Uh, so continuing with Morris's quote. So Matthew simply gives the gist of the centurion's communication to Jesus, whereas Luke, in greater detail, gives the actual sequence of events. Perhaps we can discern something of the differing purposes of the two evangelists in their treatment of the messengers. Matthew was concerned primarily with the centurion's faith and nationality. To him, the messengers were irrelevant, even a distraction. But Luke was interested in the man's character and specifically in his humility. To him, the messengers were a vital part of the story." End quote. So that's what took place here. Don't look at the difference between how the two gospel writers tell the story and think that those differences are proof of an error in the Bible. To Matthew, a former tax collector for Rome, he had probably received many messages from some higher Roman authority that were communicated to him via some lower level Roman civil servant. But to him, the instructions he received from that lower level person were just as if the higher authority had personally said it to him. The higher authority did not have to be present for Matthew to consider the words as coming directly from his mouth. I experienced the same thing many times throughout my career in law enforcement. And anyone who's been in the military has experienced the same thing through the chain of command. Uh, so that's the perspective from which Matthew is writing. Terry, does that answer your question? That's what I expected you'd say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about this centurion. Every time you see a centurion appear in the New Testament, he's a good guy. It's really amazing. I'm sure there were a lot of bad, evil centurions in the Roman army, but it's as if the Lord purposely picks out some of the most hated people in the land of Israel as illustrations of goodness and faith and saving grace to show the extent of his kingdom is to reach beyond Israel. Every time you find a centurion, whether it's the guy who was there at the crucifixion or whether it's Cornelius or whether it's this guy, they're all guys who end up being redeemed. Uh, and it's almost like a slap in the face of the Jews whose hatred for the Gentiles and especially for Roman soldiers was legendary. You see, to the Jews, if it wasn't bad enough to be a Gentile, it was worse to be a Roman soldier. Uh, and then to make it even worse, 
the soldiers of the Roman occupational army were not sent from Rome. Most of them were not even Italians. They were Gentiles from the areas that had been conquered by Rome and uh, they were under Roman control. In fact, we know from the Jewish historian Josephus that the Roman soldiers under the authority of Herod Antipas, who was the Herod who ruled over the Galilee area, they were all Gentile foreigners. Uh, so they would have been drawn from the areas around Israel, uh, such as Phoenicia, uh, the Decapolis, Syria, and Samaria. Uh, Rome hired these Gentile men into the army, trained them, and then had them serve as the occupying force. They, Because they were from right in that general area, they would have known the Aramaic language, and so they would have been better able to serve as an occupying army. It was so unusual for Roman soldiers to actually be from Italy that Luke mentions in Acts 10.1 that Cornelius was a centurion of what is called the Italian cohort. Uh, that was a very unusual thing for that region. There were always some Roman soldiers from Italy in every part of the Roman Empire, but they were very few in comparison to the rest of the army. But Cornelius was a centurion over a group of soldiers from Italy. And within the Roman army, the Italians were privileged. They were treated with greater respect and were often promoted to the upper ranks. Centurions were the military backbone of the Roman Empire. Uh, when the rank was first established, they were in charge of 100 soldiers. Uh, but over the course of time, that number varied. Uh, in comparison to our military today, they would be sort of like a captain. Uh, one Bible scholar writes that the centurions were the actual working officers, the backbone of the army, the discipline and efficiency of, a, of the legion as a fighting unit depended on them, end quote. Uh, they, were the, they were the guys who led their units into battle, uh, unlike the senior officers who stayed behind the lines. Uh, and so here is this guy, a centurion in the Roman army, assigned to Capernaum, a part of the occupying forces, who was a Gentile, who I personally believe was probably a Samaritan. I'll explain why I think that when we get to it. Uh, but he is apparently a man who learned that if you want to gain the cooperation of the people in the land that you were occupying, you should treat them kindly and with respect. And as we go through this story, we'll see that he was a very special man. Now, any Pharisee who may have heard this request that came from the centurion would have said, never. No Jew should ever do anything to assist a Gentile Roman centurion. But that's just the point. They had no perspective on the parameters of God's kingdom. In their minds, it was confined to the Jews and specifically to them as those who had, were supposedly keeping the law. But Jesus throws that door wide open and continually does so. And so that in the end, it was more than they could handle and they hated him so much they finally killed him. But this centurion comes to Jesus through the mediation of some Jewish elders. Luke 7, 4 and 5 tells us when they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him, for he loves our nation, and it is he who built our synagogue. That's why I think this man was a Samaritan. 
the Samaritans were half Jews. Uh, some people believe they were descendants of the 10 northern tribes of Israel who intermingled with foreign people. Uh, they accepted the Pentateuch, but they did not accept Jerusalem as the place where worship of Yahweh was to take place. Uh, they believed it should be on Mount Gerizim. But in many ways, the Samaritan religious beliefs were similar to the Jews. There had developed a lot of hatred between the Jews and the Samaritans during the time of the Maccabees in the intertestamental period. Uh, most Jews considered the Samaritans to be Gentiles uh, who happened to share similarities with their worship. But there were religious Samaritans who appreciated their heritage of the worship of Yahweh and tried to be obedient to the Mosaic law. And thus, I don't think it would be incredulous to say that this centurion was probably a Samaritan who loved the nation and was very religious and willing to assist the Jewish people by building them a synagogue. And verse 6 of our text tells us that what the message was that this centurion sent to Jesus. He says, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now, this is interesting. He uses a word which can be translated as child or slave, depending on the context. Uh, now, if you, ever, if you go over to Luke's account, he uses the common word doulos, uh, which clearly means slave. Uh, so the question is, is he his child or his slave? Well, the answer is simple. It's rather, it was rather common to have a child slave in the house. And in this case, based on the fact that this Greek word is a masculine gender, this slave was a young boy. And so he says, my boy slave is lying paralyzed at home and he's in great pain. We don't know what the disease or condition was, but regardless of what it was, it had resulted in this young lad's paralysis accompanied by great pain and agony. I've experienced great pain three times in my life, twice with kidney stones and once with a broken kneecap. Uh, I can tell you that that level 10 kind of pain is awful. I can't imagine what it would be like to experience that kind of pain without pain-killing drugs and be paralyzed at the same time so you can't move. So this little boy's situation was awful. There's, here's another reason why I like this centurion. He cared about this young boy who was his slave. And that sets him apart from just about everyone else in the Roman Empire, the Roman world. In fact, in the Roman Empire, slaves didn't matter. If they suffered, it didn't matter. If they lived, it didn't matter. If they died, it didn't matter. They were of no consequence. For example, the supposedly great Greek philosopher Aristotle said there can be no friendship and no justice towards inanimate objects. Indeed, not even toward a horse or an ox or a slave. For master and slave have nothing in common. A slave is a living tool just as a tool is an inanimate slave. That's Aristotle. The Greek, I mean the Roman lawyer Gaius said, we may note that it is universally accepted that the master possesses the power of life and death over his slave. That's Roman law. If you didn't like your slave, just kill him. Varro, the Roman author who wrote much about agriculture, said the only difference between a slave and a beast and a cart is that the slave talks. 
Cato the Elder, the Roman senator and historian, wrote to someone who was having trouble economically. Here's the advice he gave him. He said, look over your livestock and hold a sale. Sell your worn-out oxen, your blemished cattle, your blemished sheep, wool hides, any old wagons, old tools, an old slave, a sickly slave, and whatever else is superfluous. So you see, the people of the Gentile Roman world viewed a slave as a thing, which when injured could be cast aside or killed. Most Roman soldiers would simply have had the boy slave killed to put him out of his misery and then brought in a new healthy one. But that not this centurion. He isn't asking on his own benefit here. He isn't saying, Lord, please come heal my slave because I need him to get back to work. No, he says, Lord, my young boy slave is paralyzed and in great pain. Can you bring some relief to him? So this guy is really a nice guy. Well, we have to stop, and that's a good spot. Any comments or questions before we continue on next week? If I can just get this thing to work. Yes. Some religious leaders, Jewish religious leaders, believe that Jesus had the authority. Yes, you read my notes. <laughs> and yet, they didn't believe him. So sad. Well, anything else? <laughs>